Welcome to the Rick House Podcast, a podcast where we dip our caps into the blood of our listeners and we ramble on about old school games. In today's episode, you're going to hear some stuff that's a little bit out of order. I recorded this after some other episodes that have not yet been released, but I wanted to get it out as soon as possible as there's a Kickstarter mentioned in here that I really want you guys to be all aware of and be able to go and see before the Kickstarter closes. I'm joined by Tom Wilson of the Back to Basics fame, and we talk about zines, Kickstarters, conventions, and a whole bunch more. As you know, no mortal can run a recap. So as always, I hope you can sit back, listen, and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by Tom Wilson, not the punk rock uh, music producer that helped out Offspring a whole bunch, but the punk rock game designer, zine creator, uh, convention runner. What else do I do? I put after your name, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I do a little bit of everything, but I really kind of focus on uh, writing writing games and supplements. And um, I always jokingly say that I'm the I, uh, I provide supplements at the lower end of the hobby, the more cost-effective end. <laughs> My claim to fame. So how I came to know of who you are is by the Back to Basics um, zine, which I was one of the many people who did the Kickstarter and got the, the glorious hardcover 1 to 10 issue. Um, it's fantastic. It's right up there. I've got like a couple of, of different zines that I'm like, these are my... You know, OSR slash BX era uh, information troves, and it's it's definitely one of them. Uh, but you've done a bunch of other stuff, like you said. Uh, you've let's get the the one that's currently going right now out of the way right away. A choose your own adventure style book. That is correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, uh, trouble about that. Yeah, trouble at Mill Manor was uh, something I've been wanting to do, or choose your own uh, adventure style book, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. And after seeing a lot of um, solo adventures being written mainly for 5e and certain systems i really wanted to try something but i wanted to you know harken back to the old days of the 80s and 90s and have it be more like those traditional um traditional adventures but i wanted to give them a little bit more of a uh, more options right so most of those old ones were just like go left or go right or yes or no kind of binary with a few maybe a couple two three four options maybe and I wanted to have, make sure that I got a little deeper than that. So I started writing it probably, you want to say, May of last year. And it started turning into a much bigger thing. Uh, it's got 455 encounter areas. A lot of encounters have like 7 to 10, maybe 12 choices. So you can really just do stuff. So it's sort of, sort of bridging the your the investigative approach, but giving you options and not just giving you everything in a description. So when, you, when you're when you searching a room, if I said there's a chest and a wardrobe and a door and a fireplace and a bed, I let you choose all, search all of those things. Cause there's, you know, cause it, I wanted to be more like if you were in a role-playing game where you can actually do what you want and have a little more agency. Now it's hard to do in a choose your own adventure, of course, but I wanted to give as many options as I could. And so it turned out to be pretty robust and uh, finished it. End of last year, had it had it edited. I had Jeff D do a cover, which was pretty amazing. Uh, I have a guy named Jeff Matting doing all the interior work. Um, it's come together well. It's not doing as well as I would have hoped, but again, it's it's a it's very nichey. So it was more of a trial experiment approach. What's the writing process like for something like that? Because I got because at least with like a, if you're writing a novel or even a traditional adventure or anything else you know there's a linear process but with mm -hmm. choose your own adventure book with that many different branches how are you how did you sit down and organize that so you knew what you were doing and that all your loops were closed and, and everything else as you sure went so i 
you know, when I write most of my adventures, I'm outlining anyway. So I work through an outline and say, these are the things that are going to happen in this section, or these are the things that are going to happen in this level. Um, with this, I did the same thing. However, I took it to a different step where I actually drew flow charts so I could connect the dots of encounter areas. Like, if, for example, in here, you can enter this mansion, you know, two or three different ways. I had to make sure they all joined up. You could start the front door, or the back door, or the second floor window, and let you get into it in any direction and then be able to traverse it. The trickiest part was trying to not catch you in a certain direction based on where you entered. So you had to set, sort of have that um, same view of the room, depending, you know, regardless of which, which way you got in there. Um, so that was a challenge, but I used a flowchart. So I have literally have lines and bubbles and, and, and stuff like that to sort of connect the dots and, um, and play testing, lots of play testing to make sure that I didn't have any spots missing. I did have one or two, um, holes that opened up during play testing and that's, that's why you play test. So I cl close those up, clean them up and, um, further play test didn't reveal any problems. Uh, and it, you know, came out great, but flow charting hundred percent, you have to flow chart. Otherwise you cannot connect it. Yeah. It, it almost sounds and and the way i would imagine it it's almost more like programming than it would be mm -hmm. writing at that point like your the, the design that you're bringing to it is probably more structured like a program that would be like a, like a traditional book sure well i'm an it guy by trade so um you know i write software and i'm a database administrator and i specialize data warehousing mainly but you know sure uh, you know flow charting when you're uh, you know doing writing software same thing so you you break it out and you figure out how to connect the dots and make sure you don't have any infinite loops or you don't have any, um, you know, just end ends to the loops or, or ends of decisions that would you know, get you kind of stuck. So, um, but yeah, flow charting very much the same. Is this a, uh, an adventure where I'm going to be pulling a dice, like a fighting fantasy game, or is it more purely choose your own adventure where it's all narrative? No, it's got a, a balance of both. So there, I built a system two or three years ago called the chaos system. And, the it stands for cast health aim observe strike um and you basically have those for every point you have in one of those attributes you can flip a coin that many times when you try something so if you have two in your observe you would flip your coin twice as long as one of them comes up positive or heads whatever you want to call it um you're successful unless the challenge is more difficult like let's say to to see something that's super secret and hidden you need two you need to get two um observe point successes so throughout the game it, your stats can change which is fun so combat resolutions using the chaos system um a lot of observe checks are using the observe attribute but there are some things that are automatic if you look at something and it doesn't require some specialized skill it just happens like your old choose your own adventure style so it's a mixture of both really Trying to give you that kind of, you know, RPG element while still trying to stay true to the choose your own adventure approach of looking at everything and, and choosing your path. So it's a good balance. So you've got these and they're all pu being published under your game studio, Throwy Games. What That's is correct. Throwy? How, Throwy. That, to, <laughs> <laughs> that, re that, require, that requires a little bit of a step back and I'll give you that real quick. My dad was a, also a programmer uh, and had his own business and he used his initials. Uh, he uses his initials in the his company business. So when I built Throwy Games, I used my initials too. TH for Thomas, RO for Robert, WI for Wilson. Um, 
I wanted to go with a different name of the company. I stuck with that one early on, and um, you know, 10, 11, 12 years later, I'm there. Although there is a good chance that I may eventually move uh, into a second company with a new name for a different element of what I'm working on on the side. So, but for now, Throwy Games, <laughs> it's it's a goofy name, but it's what it is. So it's it's pronounceable. It's short and unique. So I, I mean, it's checking a lot of boxes there, regardless of of where it came from. But I mean, at yeah. least at least when somebody asks, so that's a it's, real explanation. It's first, it's, yeah, it's just a personal a person. My name in the in in the title. So <laughs> <laughs> some of the other stuff you put out, um, there's BX Extended, um, like different write ups with that, and then you've got modules or adventures for Morkborg and Old School mm -hmm. Essentials. Is there stuff out for torches? Five torches deep as well. I thought I saw something about yes, that. Yeah, I've, I've written three things for Five Torches Deep. Um, you know, when I when I first saw Five Torches Deep, uh, and I think the guy's name that owns it or wrote it is Ben Dutter, I believe. Um, I have to look at my copy. I think it's something. Ben Dutter, and I I had a conversation with him, and I said, "Hey, you know, you have something amazing here. This game is fantastic. It is, it is the perfect love child between Five E and OSR." It's got the crunchy deadliness of the old school games, but it has 5e mechanics that everyone loves. And when I found that product, and, I, and the rule book is small, right? It's like, I don't know what, 40 pages or something great. Yeah, it's um, a nice little book. So when I found that game and I played it, I said, hey, I love this game. I mean, but I love a lot of games. I'm, I'm big on all games, but I, it's probably one of my top five favorite games. And when I um, first played it, I said, oh, I got to find some stuff for this. Well, Nobody has written anything for it, really. Except there's one. There was one adventure book that was written for it. I want to say it's the Serpent Isles. Oh, I forget now, but it was, and that's a good product. But I'm like, this needs more love. So I decided that I was going to write three small, well, two small, one large, kind of really inexpensive. I think they're a couple of bucks, maybe, on drive-through PDFs to try to get the system some love. Um, and there's a lot of people who love it, but nobody really talks about it. And nobody produces for it, which is unfortunate because I think it's one of the most underrated best games out there. It's it, yeah, it's interesting because it came out what before five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's whenever I first saw it, and I picked it up right away. Um, and yeah, you know, everything you described is, is bang on. It's 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 you know an old school flavor, old school spin on on five E. But it 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 seemed like it came into this spot where everybody was like. You should get this game if you want to try OSR while keeping your mm -hmm. keeping your five E stuff. But then I think I think it was the expectation was, yeah, just go play, you know, TSR modules or modules written for other OSR games and it'll work for you. And then everybody's kind of I think I think people either tried it and they liked the OSR experience and they then went and explored other OSR games mm -hmm. or they tried it and they didn't like it and they just went back to five E. It, it feels like it was a bridge, and then once you decided which side of the bridge you were on. Mm -hmm. you, you left the bridge alone, which is unfortunate, but that's kind of yeah. how it felt like. Well, one of the things, that, yeah, one of the things I've used it for is to actually take five A five E players and transition them to OSR or BX games, and I've I've converted a lot of players to you know they most people don't play just one game anymore. They like to, to play different games, and um, yeah, your five E fans are five E fans, but you using five torches deep, you can make a five E player enjoy something other than 5e um and get that you know that deadly crunch i mean it was five what's great about five torches deep is that when <laughs> there's a lot of um you know a lot of loss of limbs and permanent injuries that i don't think you see in 5e and 
it's really wild to see people who only know 5e experience that for the first time it gives them a little bit of a an insight to some of the older games but yeah so it, i wrote some stuff for that I, if i had time i would write more i think that system's fantastic i think it could use a lot more love in the industry and so the the other two that i mentioned you've got bundles out for old school essentials is, is pretty clear for anybody who you know knows that you've made back to basics it makes complete sense that you would do anything with osc sure but morkborg what what drew you to morkborg now, Morkborg is one of those game systems that when you play it, you, you absolutely love it because it's just off the rails. And um, when I first played it, uh, I fell in love with the system. I thought it was fantastic. It was, um, you know, it was just as off the rails as you could get. Um, I think players who play Morkborg have a, a better expectation of, of um, you know, the deadliness. You don't get people get mad when their characters die in Morkborg. It's always expected. And, you know, you know, characters are constantly dying in Morkborg and it's just, it, but, but you roll a character up in five minutes and you go again. Right. So, um, I've been running a Morkborg campaign for the last few months with a, a couple of friends and, uh, they love it. But one thing I find about Morkborg is it really doesn't, it doesn't, it's not one of those things where you can say, yeah, our campaign lasted four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morkborg is just, you're, you're running through characters and it's just, it becomes a, a really challenge, a real challenge to stay engaged. But I love it as a, it's great for a con game. It's great for, uh, you know, taking a break from your AD&D or your 5e campaign or whatever. So I love the system. I think it's great. Now that's a system that obviously has a lot of love in the industry. There is so much written for Morkboard. Uh, it's a saturated market, I think, right now, but it's great. Yeah. It, do you find when folks are looking for for content for it, are they are they expecting? Like, do you get much feedback about whether people are expecting that same sort of a visual style, or are they very accepting of like a traditional, you know, module or module or supplement or adventure mm-hmm. written in as any other one would be, as opposed to the crazy art style that Morkborg goes for? Yeah, I think I think early on people expected everything that was written from Morkborg to have that same flashy, you know, those two, you know, you know hundred and fifty different fonts and you know the really you know engaging art and. Um, you know, and the kind of the crude looking maps and all that's great. And I think that's what really feels good about Morkborg. But you you definitely have seen over time, you've seen it transitioning to sort of a, a mix of almost like the OSE style bullet point stuff to um to Morkborg feel. I tried to make my three little hardcover Morkborg books um kind of a good blend between OSE and Morkborg, where it's short and sweet. But also, you you know, it's super, super ch- challenging and people are going to, you know, characters are going to die and all that fun stuff that Morkborg brings to the table. But I think it's it's changing. I think there's still people that are making really flashy, you know, um, stuff. I think it's starting, to, it's starting to change a little bit where they're starting to find that the, they want to make it more off the rails. So you're starting to see some products now that are really just crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, and I don't know where that's going to go. We'll see. If there was a game system that's somewhat popular or well-known right now that you haven't written for, what one would you be gravitating towards? Uh, actually, I, I have, I've written something but never published for Call of Cthulhu, and I'd love to do some Call of Cthulhu work. Um, Call of Cthulhu is another great system, especially the 7th edition. It's fantastic. Um, I would love to write something and publish some, something like that, but there's a little bit more... Um, a little bit more rigor around publishing for Call of Cthulhu with the rights from Chaosium and others. And I'm not sure if I want to dance around in there. 
if somebody were to have a license, somebody like maybe um, Ben Burns um, or Frog God was supposed to get a license with Cthulhu for one at one point, if they had a license and then they were looking for for freelance writers, I would definitely write something right away. Um, but Call of Cthulhu is uh, I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, just for a one shot for my group, I wrote a World War II Nazi occult adventure. Seems like that's kind of common, actually. But, <laughs> and we did that. And I actually took a real event in France where the entire town was wiped out by the SS. And I spun it to where there was an, a, um, a Lovecraftian artifact in town that, they were, that the, the French Renaissance was hiding from the Nazis. So my players, of course, coming from a fantasy campaign, you know, they, they skydived into, um, or they parachuted into the outskirts of town. One guy broke his ankle. Uh, they, they howled along. They got, you know, they started to get, getting an idea that something goes up and then they stormed the barracks of the SS and they all got wiped out, (laughs) (laughs) including one guy who I think he was the radio guy. And he got in a back alley fight with an SS guy with a bayonet and a shovel and they just nicked each other to death. Um, it was hysterical. They never found out what happened. (laughs) But that's the thing about Cthulhu is if you play it like a fantasy game, you're not going to survive it. But right. I would look for that, but I never I never uh, really could without trying to figure out how to wiggle around, you know, some of the rules and licensing. I didn't want to get into any trouble there. So, yeah, licensing is a big topic recently with everything that happened over the month of January. You and I had actually uh, I had originally approached you, I think, back in January when all this when all that was going on. It was just like, no, there's too much uncertainty mm-hmm. with that, where everything is with that now that it's kind of uh, kind of shaken out uh, mm-hmm. about some certainty of where things are what's your kind of overall thought of how that you know how it started <laughs> what it was near the middle and where it is now like how, how do you see that journey of it going yeah i mean it was really i think people were surprised when the announcement came down that there was you know that that wizards may be trying to lock down everything up to that point and trying to you know um trying to monetize as much as they could uh, I don't think we were surprised for long. I think it sort of added up once you did the math that they would try to um, figure out ways to, t- you know, take the the their stock price to another level by getting more money. Um, and then, you know, as we watched the dances, the dance occur between the community and the and the company, we saw, you know, hey, there's there's a glimmer of hope here, and you know, we just rode that rode those waves until they settled on the beach. Uh, you know, basically as we all know, you know, Wizards of the Coast backpedaled up a little bit and said, okay, so we're not going to do the things we said we're going to do. There's still some, obviously some conversation about, you know, what they could still do at some point. Um, but for the, for the, for the time being, I think most of us that are publishing or uh, most of us indie publishers that are publishing, um, you know, games, supplements, et cetera, for the old school stuff, we feel pretty comfortable that we're safe. Uh, my schedule Everything that was on the schedule is back on the schedule. I thought I was going to have to yank some stuff off, uh, but everything's back on the schedule because I feel like we're in, we're in a good spot where we can do that. You know, I don't don't know if that's for as long as everyone thinks it is. It's going to really depend on how that all shakes out. But I feel like we're in pretty good shape. And those of us that were um, that love to publish these games, because <laughs> you really can't say most of the indie publishers are making a lot of money, uh, but we can at least say that we love publishing them. We can still publish them the published for the games that we love yeah it was when it first took place when when like the first day or so whenever news was coming out of that i was kind of preaching patience to folks because i was like just because a license comes out we don't know what that license is being attached to 
So sure. I, I was I was operating under the assumption like, yeah, sure, there might be a new OGL, but there's a good chance that that OGL will only be attached to whatever the SRD would be for for one D and D. I was like, right. I I I I didn't think at that time. I was like, I don't think it's there's a legal option for them to do it on five point one or three point five. But you know, until we know what they're going to attach it to, everybody be patient. I'm glad people didn't. I'm glad a lot of people were like, no, we're going to raise the pitchforks and, and shout now because it did definitely make a difference. Um, sure. But uh, I, I'm waiting to see if they will do um, you know, the SRD for 3.5, if they'll release that or a modified version of it because I think they want to mm-hmm. pull some some things out of that SRD first before they take it to Creative Commons. But um, I think once that hits Creative Commons, I think for the most part, most everybody in the in the OSR sphere can kind of take a breath and get sure. right. We got everything. We're good now, but um, sure. yeah, licensing can be a a big big thing. It, it's interesting. I was having a conversation um, late last year with uh, Chris Goderman of Basic mm-hmm. Fantasy RPG, and we were talking a little bit about the OGL. This is long before any of this drama happened, and I was saying how there was a lot of people that were playing fast and loose with the OGL, where they were releasing content that they either didn't put the OGL on it <laughs> whenever they clearly should have been, or um, they were putting the OGL on, but clearly had never read it because they didn't even fill out a lot of the sections of the OGL that you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were comparing and contrasting that to, you know, the the work that you know Finch did with with Osric back at the time when they were mm-hmm. fighting with their, uh, you know, trying to figure out the legalities around that. Same thing with Gonerman and, and Basic Fantasy at the very beginning. So it was it was kind of interesting to hear him say at that time, yeah, there's a lot of people that, that don't know what they're getting into that could be putting themselves in hot water. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple months later, we had all of that take place. I was like, oh, yeah. Now, this wasn't so much from somebody screwing up. It was more that, hey, the rug could be pulled on you there a little bit. and Sure. And differences could come. Definitely. Um, sorry, you were you going to jump in? No, nope, go ahead. No, go ahead. I agree with you 100%. One, one of the things that I, like I said, how I found you was, was the back to basics. Um, what I love about this series of zines is... Besides, you know, the, you've got really great content in there, but it's the interviews. I think the interviews is what what grabbed me and was like, wow. I've since I started doing the interviews here with the podcast, I've always been amazed on almost every person I've reached out to has been like, yeah, sure, no problem. They'll, they'll come on. I'm, in some cases, it's kind of like you know a little bit of fanboyism. You're like, oh, really? I'm gonna get to talk to that person. That's great. Yeah. How was it for you talking to folks like Metzner and <laughs> and Cook and Otis? How, how, was it easy to to engage with them, or was that a long drawn out process? to get those interviews? Um... Well, so I was fortunate enough to, um, to, I, I didn't start with North Texas RPG con early, like in the beginning days, but uh, yeah, it wasn't long before, you know, around number seven, number eight, I started attending that convention and all those guys were there, right? They were all there and I got to play games with them. I got to talk to them. And yeah, I found out that all these, all these guys are real laid back. They're really chill about, you know, their time. Um, and I found them very approachable. And, uh, I almost actually did wrote a book with Merle Rasmussen that didn't, um, that didn't come together for various reasons. And I still find them to be a, you know, a, a fun guy to talk to. So I started asking some of these guys at North Texas, Hey, you know, I have a little fanzine, you know, if you, I know you did some work. And I was and in the early days. I was like, yeah, I got to make sure that you did something in the BX world before I interview you. We'll prioritize those guys. So either BX or Beckme. Um, if you did something in that that product line, I want to interview you. So I started the, working through that list. 
And uh, every single one, not a single person said no. Every Like you said, everyone was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, it's even easier, by the way, to get a written interview because uh, they can take their time. You know, yeah. They can take their time. And I usually would, you know, I'd be working on one issue and I'd already be two or three interviews ahead just to make sure I was getting, you know, people enough time to do the work. Because early on, those were those were quarterly and they were just a, whew, that's a monster. When you're, <laughs> when you're tied to a schedule, it's a monster. So, but I was, you know, I always try to work a couple issues ahead and I was getting these guys and uh, yeah, I found it to be a fantastic experience to talk to these guys. You know, there were some, there's some that didn't want to answer any questions about certain things. And I, and I respect that. Uh, some people, I had uh, one individual in particular, I won't say who, <laughs> uh, that basically wouldn't answer half the questions. So I had to come up with more questions to sort of get them to talk about some other things. Um, but most everybody else was pretty much, uh, willing to talk about almost anything as long as it wasn't, um, like, I, I don't think you'll see a single question besides maybe my, well, obviously my interview in Gamma Zine, which is sort of the Gamma World version of Back to Basics, I talked to Luke, Luke Gygax about his dad and him working together. So there was a little Gary Gygax conversation there. But a lot of those things, I didn't get into like very specific Gary Gygax questions. I mean, everybody knows the stories. I wanted to know about their, you know, the the person who's being interviewed, what their time was like at TSR in the early days or in the days they were there. And, you know, what work they were proud of, the you know, most proud of or things like that. Um, trying to get more of their telling of their of their involvement in the early days of those games and i found every single one of them to have really good insights and good information so this this issue number 12 that's coming out later this month is the first interview i'm doing without somebody from a tsr background so i'm kind of evolving into um kind of where the industry is going so you're going to get an interview from gavin norman in this one talking about I, old school essentials so. Yeah, I, I was speaking with him recently as well. He's a great person. To He's awesome. Um, He's awesome. The uh, and that's really cool that you're bringing him in because even though it's not from TSR, it's still very much it's it's BX, right? So it's, I mean, it's he's probably got the most popular, you know, BX like clone out there right now. It's just a beautiful product, um, staying faithful to the original rules, and uh, you know has has built a, a beautiful set of products that I think everybody sort of says yeah this is bringing a lot of people back to bx so yeah he's he set the bar really high i mean there's going to be uh we're going to be seeing new versions of labyrinth lord and sword and wizardry coming out here within the calendar year and i mean sword and wizardry is, is a little bit different piece but labyrinth lord used to be you know the bx clone of choice yep. uh mm -hmm. dan is going to have to do some really big work to to kind of differentiate himself i know he's he's got some plans of making it less of a clone of BX and more of his game now moving forward. But mm -hmm. um, it that, that, would actually, that would actually be good if he did that because you don't want to compete with the old school essentials version. I think that would be a mistake on his part. Um, but if he took Labyrinth Lord in a direction where it's a little bit more of the rule set that he wants and a little bit, you know, a little different direction, I think it'll be better for him, honestly. Yeah. Whenever, whenever I was speaking with him, he, he kind of described it as, you know, at the beginning he was trying to make a, a clone. Um, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of things that he would wanted to do, but didn't feel he could because it would have broken, broken compatibility uh, and what have you. Sure. Um, but now, having seen how the games have evolved over time, he feels much more comfortable about just going and, and creating his own things. So um, mm -hmm. he released a, a list of classes recently, which looks interesting. So we'll see, we'll see what comes of that. But um, yeah, OSE is is a great game. It's it's my it's of of the clones. My my two biggest 
uh, clones is, is OSE and, and basic fantasy are the two that I reach for all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't reach for just my straight BX books, to be honest. Sure. But see, originally this was the 10 issues. You did the hardcover and there was a feeling that that might be the end of the line of, of those. Uh, you reached the stretch goal. You got the 11th one uh, that came out there and now number 12 is coming out. So are we back to back to basics is back to a full fledged. It's going to run for a while, or is this still, we're playing an episode or issue by issue type idea for a little while. Well, um, so here, so when I did the first 10 issues, I was really grinding them out every quarter, right? So every three months I'm putting out an issue, trying to get it printed. It became a, it became a chore. And that's the last thing you want as a publisher is to make something that you feel like you have to do. And then you don't want to do. I never hated doing it, but it was being on a release schedule was really tough. It was a challenge to, to stay up for it. I couldn't do anything else while I was doing it. And there's a lot of things that I had in the pipeline that I wanted to get done. So I figured I would take a break. I have never gotten so many emails from people about, please don't stop back to basics. And I was like, <laughs> I hear you. I don't, I I'm going to, I'm, I'm saying it's going on a long-term hiatus. And then there was a push for the stretch goal, which I never thought we would make. And then we did. So I said, all right, we'll make an 11th issue. Um, and then after that 11th issue, I got a ton of people saying, can we see number two, number 12? And I was like, wow, you guys still want this. All right. So luckily for me, I've got, um, I had a bunch of articles written or a bunch of, a bunch of content written by James Michael Spahn. Um, if you know him, he's got, he does some really great work in the industry. Um, and he, you know, he wanted to write some stuff for me cause he liked the zine and I paid him for his work. So he wrote a bunch of stuff for me and I said, well, I'll put that on the back burner and we'll put it, we'll put it in some scene work later. And then it made number 11 easy, made number 12 easy. Cause now I've got, you know, some of the content that he's submitted just, just slides right in. Um, so yeah, so number 12 will be out this month and will there be a 13? Of course there will be. I can't say when, because I'm, I've, I've promised myself I'm not going to grind out to a schedule. I'm just going to put them out when I have enough content and I feel it's good enough stuff. I'll push it out. Um, but they'll be, I, I, I really feel like you'll probably see 20 issues, another compilation at the end of that to go with the first one. I feel like that's going to happen. I don't know when. It could be a couple of years by the time we get through all that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm internally, I'm committing to 20 issues. I feel like that's a really solid number. Um, so we'll just, we'll just, just keep popping them out as we see fit. I really want to get 10 issues of Gamazine. I'm <laughs> struggling to get number four done. Um, uh, that was a little bit harder to do. Um, it's not as much material in the industry that really keeps that the Gamma World flavor kind of moving forward. I know there's some new stuff coming from Paysetter. I'm supposed to have the exclusive first look at all the rules from them for uh, Gamma X, which is their BX version of Gamma World. I'm supposed to have those rules any day now where I can do a full in-depth review of the entire rule set, not just snippets, but the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, and once I do that, that'll be great, a, a great spotlight in the next Gamazine. So it's tough to be on a schedule. I, li <laughs> yeah. I like getting stuff out when it's done and I feel good about it. <laughs> Last week I did an interview with um, Russ from um, D12 Monthly. So he puts out mm -hmm. a zine every single month. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm, uh, it, it boggles my brain how somebody can be that consistent and and put out stuff like that. I, I Yeah, it's it must be a grind. Um, but yeah, yeah like tough. you said, it, it, it capitalizes all of his time. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I can, I can see why if you're putting out a bunch of other stuff, you wouldn't want to try to commit to that grind constantly. Yeah. I have, I have a different approach than most, most people. I know most people, um, will 
focus on one thing, write it, finish it, move on to the next thing. I'm the kind of guy that likes to have six things going at once because that way, I mean, the easiest way to de defeat writer's block or uh, stagnant um, stuff is just basically be working on more than one thing. So if I sit down and say, I'm going to work on this article for Back to Basics today and I'm not feeling it, I'll shift over to something else I'm working on and that I might be feeling and I'll, and I'll, I'll get some good work done. That way I'm never like just forcing it. I'm always working on something different. I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it takes a different mindset. Um, it might be good for some people, might be bad for some people. For me, I find that it works. So I'm working, you know, right now I'm working on six different projects, easily six different projects. And that's just how I work. So, uh, it, yeah. So if, if I feel good about one thing, I'll work on that. If I feel like something else, I'll do that. It all gets done eventually. I just, you know, <laughs> I just got to go where my 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 heart wants me to go that moment. I'm, and I'm sure that helps keep you motivated because there's never a point where you're like, I just, I don't want to touch this anymore. And if you don't want to touch that, that's fine. You got something else you can pick up right away. Whereas suppose right. if you were like, I don't want to touch this anymore. And then you had to come up with something brand new to start. It can be hard to get that motivation just to get the first step or two in. Attention all brave adventurers, are you tired of lugging around a shaggy dice bag that makes you roll a critical failure on your charisma checks? Well, fret not, because Manscaped.com is here to help. With their Performance Package 4.0, you will have everything you need to make your dice bag one of the cleanest at the table. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is waterproof and equipped with ceramic blades, giving a plus one to safety. There is even a handy-dandy LED flashlight for those late-night dungeon crawls. There's also the Crop Preserver Deodorant, which will keep your dice bag smelling fresh and ready for adventure. So why settle for a dice bag that is anything less than top-notch? Head over to manscaped.com and use the promo code REDCAP for 20% off and free shipping. Display your D20s and tidy up your dice bag with Manscaped. Just remember to use the promo code REDCAP and you'll get 20% off and free shipping. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, a lot of these really famous folks that we mentioned before and their legacies if you had to look over your body of work over a while what what that's been published already if you had to pick one thing that was going to be what people remember you for what is it going to be or has uh -huh. that yet to be written well you know that's that's a fantastic question i'd say if you if you wanted to limit that to what's already been written i think i think um it's quite obvious i think back to basics is sort of going to be my going to be the one you know the big the big flagpole uh, event for um all the work that i've done i think people are most recognizable for that most people who say oh you're tom from three games you wrote back to basics yep that's me most people know me for that and that's great and i, I love that work you know fanzines are fun um i've written some stuff that i feel like is really solid some of my best work that's kind of gone unnoticed and that's you know that may be discovered later like i wrote a book for pace setter uh, called the lost triptych which i feel like is some of my best work i've ever written um it was a project they kickstarted during covid uh it, it kind of you know kind of got buried in, in the mess of things uh it's a fantastic piece of work it's you know hundreds of thousands of words massive book i overwrote it uh paysetter panicked about how many words it was because we, we i went like sixty thousand words over what we agreed i told them I don't care. Don't pay me for the 60,000. I want all of it in there because it makes sense to have it all complete. Um, so they've made a bigger book. Um, I think it's my, one of my best adventures that I've ever written. Uh, very inspired by, uh, uh, oh, inspired by a Canadian metal band. So if you know, unleash the archers, 
female lead out of Canada. They're fantastic. And they had a, a, an album called Apex, which is a basic, they're very much like, uh, they play D and D. They have a Twitch D and D game. They, they're really a fantastic band and everything is story driven. All their albums are like for every song is part of a whole story that they give. And it's about this matriarch goddess of this mountain. And I'm like, Oh, I really dig this. I want to, I want to write something like this. And sure enough, I wrote about, um, this lost sake, this, this sacred triptych that was stolen by this evil goddess who broke it apart and was going to reassemble it as an evil artifact. And you, uh, your your group has to ascend this mountain, like foot by foot, area by area to try to recover the pieces and then fight the, the, um, the, the high priest of the order at the end. And, it's a pretty wild, fantastic adventure, high level, challenging, uh, lots of great artifacts and cool magic items in it. Um, and that was one where I actually couldn't put it down. So it was like my normal process is work on this a little bit. Now work on that a little bit. This is one where I just sat down and I wrote the whole thing from beginning to end. And I don't think I worked on anything else while I did that. I really wanted to just to really nail this thing. And I, like I said, it, it did well. They, they made good money on it. Uh, I know it sells well at the convention table. Uh, they did that. Wonky did an alt cover for it. That's gorgeous. Um, it's one of my best works, and I don't. I don't think anybody knows that I wrote it. <laughs> so, if you see the, it at um, the convention table, you got to buy it. <laughs> I, I have not heard of that band, but I'll have to check them out too because because it's in, it's in the genres that I would be listening to. So I will definitely take yeah. a look into that. Well, if you need if you need any recommendations for songs, just to try them out, I can give you a whole bunch afterwards. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So another thing that you mentioned earlier of how you were able to find people for interviews uh, with Back to Basics was was North Texas RPG Con. Uh, kind of the for anybody who is not familiar with it, um, the premier OSR convention, I think. Well, most people would agree it's it's kind of the the go-to um but you also run a convention ShireCon. that's correct what's that, what's that like i've not been to it i meant to go to it right before covid started and then covid hit and just derailed sure. everything um because it's only a few hours away from me i get about probably what six eight hours away to drive mm -hmm. what what is running that con like and and how would you describe it to somebody who isn't familiar with it at all so ShireCon is a was a one-day game convention that's now turned into a one and a half day. We're going to slowly grow it, um, you know, over the next few years. It's This is our fifth year this September. Um, and it's mostly old school games. Now, we don't limit what games people submit, but it seems to draw a lot of OSE, a lot of DCC, MCC. Uh, we get a lot of, we get Morkborg. We get... Um, we do get Call of Cthulhu. Uh, we had a really good, great Call of Cthulhu game run by Stephen the Galt, who runs Rising Phoenix Con, which is in April. He he ran a Scooby Doo slash Peanuts slash Call of Cthulhu game that was, I guess, was off the rails. Um, so we get a little bit of everything, but it's we've yet to believe it or not, we've yet to have. I think we've yet to have a five E game, but we've only had one five E game, uh, one or two maybe over the course of the five years. And it's mostly, we get mostly BX OSC. Oh, we get a lot of Hyperborea as well. There's a dedicated following of guys in the area that will run Jeff Talanian's game there. And Jeff Talanian has come to four of the five, so he's been there quite a bit. He comes down from New Hampshire. Um, 
it's a like it was a one day con, three sessions, we have a couple vendors, and it turns out it, it does it does well. We get about 80, 90 people this year. We had about a hundred. Uh, we're gonna open it up. Friday was a um sort of off the books get together, play cards, board games, magic the gathering, eat pizza, drink beer, whatever. That turned into something bigger this year. We had I think 30 people show up Friday night, kind of ad hoc. And I was like, nah, now we got to make it a real a real part of the convention going forward because people really want to be here Friday night. So we're opening up a uh, the first session of the weekend will be Friday night going this year, this starting this year. Um, so it's basically just a you know a short little con, local people, but we get people from probably nine states that make the trip in. Uh, we're lucky in New England that the states are all small, so it sounds like a lot of states, but it's really you know <laughs> everybody's still two to three hours away. Um, a lot of guys from New York City, Boston, um, not so much Pennsylvania, a couple there, a lot of Jersey, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, you know the the the, the New England towns. Um, yeah, we get a good following. Get a lot of a lot of the people who've been, you know, have been to Shire kind of been there all five years. They've got a dedicated group that comes, and it's a good time. I, it's hard to run a convention, but I I thank uh, I say I I'll thank a few people that are real were really instrumental in teaching me sort of how to take it on the first time. Um, Doug Gray, who we la- we lost a few years ago from North Texas, he was he was instrumental in helping me put my expectations in perspective and make sure that I started, you know, small and didn't do everything all at once and, you know, start off with a five day or four day because of crazy. Uh, Alex Kammer from game hole con. He was, I spent a lot of time talking with him about, you know, the, the right things to do early on. You know, of course, Mike Battelotto from North Texas as well. Um, those guys are really instrumental in helping somebody do a first time convention and do it the way they needed to do it for their area. We have a small town. It's not a city. So we couldn't, you know, house a lot of people. We can't, you don't have a lot of restaurants. It's a really small town, a thousand people we have in our town. Um, so this is what it needs to be. It needs to be small, intimate. You know, I think we'll probably never see more than 125, 150 people max, I believe. Um, and that's okay by me. It, it's, it's a small con that everybody knows everybody, instant friends. This year we're going to do barbecuing. It's going to be a lot of fun. So it's, you know, it's September is a great time in Connecticut. You know, the wheat leaves may start turning <laughs> at that point. It might seem to be, seems to be a couple weeks later than that nowadays. But, um, you know, you get the nice fall weather. It's, it's fantastic. And we get the same, same, uh, same criminals there every year. And it's a good time. So <laughs> for yourself, what's, what's the pressure change been like for, you know, being the one that's organizing it and trying to keep all the balls in the air? uh you know while it starts and and what have you versus just being able to relax and going to any other convention that you may go to so like do you during ShireCon, do you get a chance at a, is there a certain tipping point during the convention that you're like oh i can breathe now and just go on and just enjoy the con as as if you were a participant versus are you always in that juggle mode well for me because now this is my fifth year um for me it's been that that first year making sure I had everything done correctly in, in time. I kind of have a, I have a, I have a, a, you know, I'm a project planner. So I'm always looking at like how to do things at the right time. I'm already doing stuff. Like I already have the logo for this year. I already. Pr- I saw that. That t- looks really good too. Yeah, I've test printed t-shirts already. I've already started getting, you know, special deals on pins and things like that for the convention. And I start early because you have to, uh, I'm a one man show for the background stuff. 
But I'll I'll echo what Alex Cameron will say from Game Con and what Mike Battalotta would say from North Texas. It's all about the volunteers, right? You need people who want to see the con be successful to volunteer. And I get five to seven volunteers every year, and they all have a role to play. They've done it every year. They know exactly what they're doing, um, and they're instrumental. I couldn't do it without them. So for me, it's get everything done early. So that when you're, you're two weeks into the con, you're like, what am I, what do I got to do? I'm, I'm all set. I just got to wait for the day to show up and then set up, um, you know, and my volunteers come up, we, we, we load the tables in, we load the chairs, we get the place organized on Thursday. It's all set Friday. I'm waiting around in the morning, excited about starting the game that night. Um, it's really about prep, getting it done early. And then your volunteers come in the day of, and they make things happen. I set people say, you got a desk, you got this, you got that. And I just float and I just float. And then of course, what's happened the last few years is the the last session of the of the day on Saturday I run the first year I ran a, a meat grinder adventure. It was BX. We had 20 players. It was basically every room gets harder until everybody dies. And then <laughs> I, I developed a game called Tavern Brawl, which is basically player versus player in a three-floor tavern with specialized rules to make it go quickly. And that is a huge hit, absolutely huge hit. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's the first game that sells out usually. Um, I run that in the evening slot on Saturday. Uh, I run it for 12 or around 12 players because any more than that gets really complicated. I've actually been asked by two conventions to bring it and run it there. Um, I was supposed to run it at Rising Phoenix Con. However, I got obligated into a uh, regional uh, <laughs> regional fire exercise weekend that same weekend. So <laughs> I had to... I had to prioritize the uh, the regional fire exercise instead, but I would have run it there, um, and I'm definitely going to be running it in North Texas as well. So I'm actually rebuilding the board so it'll actually fit in my carry on so I can bring it because um, it's a 3D board with you know lots of stuff. So um, so that's a, a popular game, and then and when that and when that session shows up, you know that's that's at 5:30 slot. The day is done, right? Everything's pretty much. Most of the people who've come in from New York City that are, want to get home have already are leaving at 5:30. People who remain are playing in the last few games that are per, pretty local or are staying one more night. Um, I have some really good friends who come in, like Matt Roberts and a few others from Boston, that will come in and they'll stay late Saturday night with me. We'll play the tavern brawl and then we'll stay up and we'll have some scotch and we'll trade stories. And next thing you know, it's midnight, one o'clock, and we're like, "Oh, we gotta clean up tomorrow. We gotta get out of here." So, um, but yeah, so. Prep early, volunteers, the day of, it should be like no big deal because if you've done all the prep and you have your volunteers lined up and know what they're doing, that day of the con, I just float. I just float, talk to people. You know, I answer a few questions about, you know, concerns or whatever, but it's generally very easy that day. And it, even in the first year, it was easy that day because I had prepped and planned and had good volunteers. So that's all it is. It's, and you know, I, I'd rather play all the whole time, but when, when you run a con, you gotta, you gotta own that. So I, I'm lucky enough to do one game at the end of the, I run a game at the end of the night, but I love watch, looking around, seeing everyone play. We have a really fun raffle that we do. Uh, I get a lot of donations and people walk away with armfuls of books and stuff. So it's great. And, uh, all donated from uh, various publishers and, and cons. Um, people love it and I love it and it's gonna, it's here for the foreseeable future. And again, it won't won't ever be like five thousand people. I can't. Not in our town. I'd have to move it 
I think 125, 150 is about what maximum, and that's only if I can push into another space next to the building. So it's I wish it was more small cons like that. Like I so I live in the Toronto area, and there's very for as big of a city as Toronto is, and as for as many people that are in the industry that's in the, the greater Toronto area, there's surprisingly very few conventions um for that. Um and I am in no position to be the person that's going to start one of those up, but I really do mm. wish somebody else would. Um, sure. The you mentioned uh, the uh, the fire exercises. How much of this side of of your life, the the RPG side and the conventions and the game design, do the guys at the fire hall know about, or or the guys at, at work or what have you? Is is that does that get intermixed, and do they, do they understand what's going on? Do they do they also get uh, get into it at all or is it a no i keep that separate and i don't sure that's it. a great that's a great question um so from a work perspective i'll start with work because that's easier uh i'm in it so most of the guys i work with play D or play some games so they're half the guys i work with vol are, vol are volunteers at shire con are in my local gaming group yeah that's easy because we're all the same sort of the gamer gamer you know gamer it the stereotypical gamer it guy right um at the fire hall, they're just starting to figure that out. I've been with the fire service now three years. Um, I've really done a lot in those three years. I really felt the call to service for the town, really wanted to help. Um, I've had a pretty, you know, I had a pretty good life. And I felt like, you know, in my 50s, it was time to give back. I didn't expect to give back as much <laughs> or as, as hard. <laughs> I mean, I went through, I went through um, six months of, of uh, firefighter training at, you know, 52 years old, which I don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not in bad shape. I, you know, I used to be a competitive uh, bodybuilder and power lifter. So I've always been strong and, you know, in pretty decent shape. Although, you know, typical white guy, old white guy getting flabby and, you know, whatever. But, um, but it, it, you know, it was, it was good to be able to give back to the community. Um, it's a small town. So small firehouse. Uh, everybody is needed. I mean, our, we have fire calls. It's generally the same five or six people showing up. So it's a small fire crew. So it takes up a, a, a lot of my time. Um, they know that I'm kind of nerdy and I, I do these gaming things. They don't understand it. A couple of the firefighters showed up to ShireCon last year just to see what the heck it was. <laughs> so that was, it was kind of neat to try to walk them through stuff and explain what people were doing. And, you know, some of them got it and some of them don't, but that's okay. They know that's a part of my life and they, they're a really good bunch of people and you know they they let me use the the firehouse lets me use their tables for free which is fantastic so i, I bust that we have a whole bunch of tables i'm gonna hopefully try to use their tents next year um or this year rather too so we can set up some stuff outside for barbecue whatever um so they're really good to me and um because i really give a lot of my time as much as i can to the firehouse um so yeah they know they know enough to know that i'm doing this other thing most of them don't really care to know the details because they don't really care i mean they'd rather be you know um talking fire equipment and apparatus and um other things you know working on trucks and that kind of stuff um but you know they 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 know that it's part of me and they accept it and it's uh it just works out but yeah i mean if I, i'm not going to get any you know, they're not, no one's saying, Hey Tom, what are you working on next? It's like, no, that does, that's not happening at the firehouse. <laughs> it's about, you know, uh, can you make the training next month or can you, uh, you know, do you want to go to another class or whatever? So <laughs> good stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I'll, I'll, I will wrap this up in a, in a minute or two. The, I wanted to ask, um, just because I know the Kickstarter is coming up close to the end of it. When does the Kickstarter close on, on, uh, trouble at mill manor and after it closes, uh, how long or when will it show up for, uh, for people that didn't get in on the Kickstarter type idea? Sure. So trouble at mill manor closes on the 20th of February. It's a Monday. So we're looking at, you know, tomorrow will be a week left. Um, the, everything is written, edited. Uh, the cover is obviously done and, and all, but a couple of the interior illustrations are done, but Jeff Matting is, is working furiously on the last few. Um, if for some reason the project just starts to go crazy, we have more content and that content will need to be either developed or edited. I've almost finished writing the epilogue. Um, I don't know if it's going to get published because we're not going to, we may not meet that stretch goal. Um, but if it does, if we do meet that goal, then it's got to be edited, which, you know, it's about a hundred encounter areas. So that may take a few weeks. Um, and then a little bit of more art for it. So that could push the, the delivery out till, you know, till, uh, April. Um, but let's say it, it closes, you know, let's say it doesn't do that well and it closes, you know, close to where we're at now, let's say 2000, 3000 thereabouts. Um, the book will be almost ready to go at that point. Um, actually I'm thinking about submitting the book as it stands right now, how it looks today with all the art that I have done and everything in it's already edited just to send it out for a test print to see what it looks like, see how drive through does with that printing. The goal here is that when the project's done, most of it, most of the content's already ready to go and it's ready and it's ready to be sent off to people within a few weeks of the close. Um, and again, depending on how much, how many stretch goals get met. Uh, once it's ready, it's ready. It'll be ready for everybody. So, I mean, just because I'll be pushing coupons out to the backers doesn't mean that right at the day after that, it's not available for, it's available for people to, to just go purchase. So, um, Kickstarter backers will, will pay three, $4 less than what everybody else will be afterwards. I, I like to ask this question too, cause it's, you've done a bunch of different Kickstarters. If you had to pick one thing that you think causes Kickstarters to fail, uh, or one piece of advice for somebody who's starting up one. What would that one be? Uh, well, the one I always tell people when I get asked uh, a similar question to this is, you know, what should I do to make sure that I uh, I get funding successfully? I was like, write all the material, get it done. Just just finish it. You don't have to have it 100% edited. You don't have to have all the art and maps done, but have the majority of the content done. The way oh. but to complete it because it's, it's um you know it's finished to the most to the most you know to for mostly finished right now i tend to push things out i like to have not only thing not only it being written but also edited i feel like the editing piece is a really good piece to have done as well so i generally will not kick something unless it's written and edited and then you know art is a, is a tricky thing so you know it's us creators are, are, are a finicky beast. We, you know, we like to spend our time doing things other than what we're creating it sometimes. And, you know, artists are, fall to that, to that same hole as well. So I try not to put too much pressure on artists. I try to get stuff done early. Um, I mean, Jeff Matting was working on art four months ago for me, four or five months ago. I was trying to get ahead of it, right. I give him enough time to create the things that he loves to create. You know, he, 
he'd draw something that was fantastic and then he would draw something that he didn't like and wanted to start over and i said fine start over i want it to be your you i want you to love your work too but that means not saying you got six weeks right you, you got to give yeah. him some time so i tend to have a lot of my work done first i think early days of kickstarter you could do whatever you wanted and people just threw money at you i think now people are more careful so if you have everything created and it's all done it just needs to be like finishing touches and test prints and such i think you'll do well if you say i have an idea throw me money yeah it doesn't work anymore in kickstarter so that's the number one thing um also you know, uh, and the thing that I don't do well, which I tell other people that they should do is just do better job marketing yourself and trying to get out there. Um, that's not my expertise. And so I, I struggle there and I need help with that still. But I tell other people, if you have good connections, social media, and you have, you know, ways to get that out there, then do it because that does help. Yeah, when I was speaking with uh, with Steve from Low Fantasy Gaming, we were talking about Kickstarters a little bit. And he was saying that, for the kickstarters he's done the vast majority of the people that end up backing are people who discovered it through kickstarter itself um mm -hmm. like just the you know they were browsing kickstarter kickstarter recommended it to them are, are do you find that or is it is yours more of like repeat through previous things that you've done do you do you know what your kind of like your percentage breakdown is on that is it yep i do actually, one way or another yeah kickstarter does give you some good analytics behind the scenes in the dashboard about where people are coming from and I do get about 50% or more repeat business. So it's funny because in the early parts of a Kickstarter, I I generally will laugh because I'm every name that comes through, I recognize <laughs> <laughs> that they've bought, you know, either back to basics or other stuff that I've written. So I get a lot of, I mean, I have people who really like my work and back a lot of my stuff. And when I see new names, that's great. But I do tend to sort of stay in the same circle of people a lot. I mean, I would love to break out and have, uh, reach a broader audience and i'm trying to do that this this week i'm um, hoping that there's a couple things that i do that will really push out a little bit further um but i do tend to see the same people and, and i appreciate every single one of them for that now i've got a couple new people this this time around that i've never met before never talked to before that had some really interesting questions for me that made me think about some things a little differently um and you know they have some they had some they had some wish, you know, some wishes about the pro the the project that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stretch a little bit and try to help them out in a different way, just because I want to accommodate their their needs. Um, and I think that's you know that's obviously the way to start to reach more people is to just try to be a little bit more flexible about certain things. So like I've been very adamant I'm not making a PDF for this book. This is I want you to have it in your hands. It's a print. It's like the old choose your own adventure books, right? I want you to turn the pages and find the encounters and go through it page by page. Um, there are some people that said, I, I can't, I can't hold a book. I have problems with my fingers. I need, I needed something on my Kindle. And it's like, well, why would I say no to people that, that need something different? Right. Um, so there are going to be some people that are going to get PDFs because they can, I'm actually going to be printing full eight and a half by 11 sheets of the book for one customer's three ring binder because they can't hold a small book, but they can use a three ring binder to flip through pages. So I'm going to print it. And I'm going to send it to him um, because he asked and I said, okay. So, I mean, sometimes you just got to bend a little bit, but uh, I do find that uh, most of my business is people that I recognize. And doing things like that is what's going to make those same people come back. They'll be like, well, yeah. uh, you know, Tom treated me really well on this and and so I'm going to continue to 
to help them out with that. So I think I think that's just good customer service and good, you know, realizing that it, it is niche and it is small, but um, once yeah. once you've gotten in somebody's good graces, there's there's a good chance you'll stay there. So, yeah, we, I mean, we have to remember that we <laughs> we're not the only customer, right? Like, so uh, you know, I I kind of think about people who, you know, have some you know some requirements that I didn't anticipate and I have to bend to be flexible. So, and that's the name of the game here. So, yeah, I was we were talking about Morkborg before, and and it falls into a category of games, the the kind of like the art punk games where their books are they are they're stunningly amazing visual books but if if you have poor eyesight mm-hmm. um, they're incredibly difficult books to go through uh, so i was speaking with um with a gentleman earlier this week he's got a kickstarter going on for a game called the true osr it's a big parody of of the osr type idea but mm-hmm. his his game is also very much in this art punk style and i was like i don't know if you've thought about it but you may want to think about how screen readers will approach this because um, you know, while it's visually stunning, it will be incredibly screen reader unfriendly. Um, and so it was interesting because uh, when that got brought up to the creators of Morkborg, they were like, oh, well, we've got a plain text. We can release a plain text uh, yep. document version of it, um, which really helped out, you know, people who had sure. vis- visual issues and what have you. So, yeah, I think just taking a little bit of time and because and, we all got blind spots for that sort of stuff. I, it wouldn't have been something I would have probably thought of either if I was sure if I had the ability to do the, the fantastic art stuff that they do. But um but yeah, it's 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 cool that you're able to do that. That's really neat. The last question I got for you. Um, sure. You, you've done a bunch of interviews yourself with, of other folks, and you've been interviewed a few times that, that I've seen around. And I'm sure that whenever I reached out to you and was like, hey, can we sit down and have a conversation? If you're anything like me, you probably in the back of your head went, hmm, I wonder what sort of stuff they're going to ask. And maybe even like pre-formulated some answers. What are some things that I didn't ask or that nobody else has been asking you that you would love to have somebody ask so you could talk about it? Like what's, what's a topic that, you know, is, is near and dear to you, but maybe doesn't get asked about at all that you'd like to tell anybody about. Hmm. Well, I, I've been asked all sorts of questions and I've been interviewed by people who don't know anything about role-playing games. I, I did a radio interview uh, in our local area from someone who had absolutely no idea what, what role-playing was. So that was like, those questions are wild because now you're trying to break down a whole game for somebody who's never even heard of it before. Uh, I've had, you know, really intellectual interviews where I was unable to answer questions because I had no idea what the guy was asking me because he was way smarter than I was. Um, and I've had everything in between. Um, I think, you know, the questions, uh, surprisingly, the questions I don't get enough of is people don't ask like, you know, tell me some about your early days of gaming and, you know, what you played or what your characters were, early characters were like. I've had, I think one person asked me that question. Um, I, I don't get a lot of questions uh, about, you know, tell me where you think you're going to be. What are you going to be making in three years, four years from now? Like, what do you, where do you, do you see yourself changing direction on what you've been doing to something different? Um, All right. So let's take mo- those two. Let's take okay. those two. So tell me your, tell me, describe the character sheet for your favorite character from, from long ago. Like how messy was it? Was it on an index, index card? Was it on a traditional, uh, you know, piece of paper in a binder? What what level was the character in? Do you remember anything like what what did they have? There was a somebody recently posted on Twitter. Um, I want to say it was Moldbay's character sheet. It could be. I'm pretty sure it was Moldbay's character okay. sheet of a wizard from long ago, and it was awesome just to look at it and have that little sure. time capsule. What, what would yours look like? Well, I'll give you a little background because it's kind of interesting. So, my very first, I I started playing D and D. I moved to a new school in eighth grade. 
and immediately fell into a group of guys that were playing this game I never heard of before called D&D. Now, at that point, I had read, read The Hobbit, uh, and I was a big fan of fantasy, but I didn't know this game, this kind of game existed. So in the first study hall, second study hall, they pulled me in and said, hey, do you want to check this game out? So I watched, and I was like, this is wild. And the guy who was GMing said, um, hey, come over to my house today after school, and we'll roll up a character, and we'll, I'll run you through something, you can try it out. So, okay. So I went over, I walked to his house, which was like a couple miles away. Nobody ever walks that anymore as a kid, but I did. <laughs> um, I think it was 1982 or 81. And so at this house, I rolled up a very high intelligence character. This is BX. So I said, oh, magic user. So I rolled up a magic user. Rolled for hit points. Got one. <laughs> okay. You, t- you, roll, you rolled what you got and that was it, right? So I had one hit point. He started me off on the entrance to keep on the borderlands. It was nighttime. He said, the portcullis is closed. First, I didn't know what a portcullis was. Then he explained it to me. Okay. And he said, "Uh, what do you do? I said, well, is there anyone around? He said, yeah, there's a guard up top. He tells you it's too late. You got to go away. And I told him, no, you're going to let me in. I'm a a powerful wizard. And (laughs) so I badgered him. I badgered him. And then he shoots a crossbow bolt and kills me. (laughs) Yep. I was literally, we, yeah, I was like five, 10 minutes into the game and my character died. So the GM was like, okay, so he's either going to play again or he's going to quit. I said, now nah, we're getting in this keep. So I rolled up the next character, high dex guy, thief. Now, the reason I tell that story is that thief, I used that thief for seven or eight years. So he had a really stupid name, but what do you expect for, you know, uh, you know, an eighth grader? Um, but I got, uh, I switched from, BX to AD&D first edition tournament from a thief to an assassin maxed out highest level assassin. And I was on the run constantly because that's how assassins worked in first edition, right? You, if you're the top guy, everyone's, everyone wants to take you out. So I spent years just dodging other assassinations. I retired that character. Obviously once I graduated high school, didn't want to play him anymore. He was too powerful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm very fond of that character sheet. That character sheet went through many iterations. It went from a single sheet of pa- three ring lined, you know, paper to um, a couple of pages to a whole small. I don't know if you remember. I'm not sure what you had in your your high school, but we had these little blue examination books for tests. They were like probably a little wider than five and a half by eight and a half, um, a little taller, I should say, or no, a little wider. And there was maybe 12 to 16 pages in it. They were for like essays for examinations in our high school. Okay. And so there's not many pages and they threw them away. There's so many of them. So I took one of those and I made my character in that. And I filled up the whole darn book with everything he had and all the things he'd done. And so I retired that character, but I'm always fond of him because he was my second character. Um, and he went through a lot of changes. We went through BX to AD&D. I think he actually, I, made, I pushed him into the second edition world for a while too, before I really retired him. So oh that's God. the one I remember. I, I think that character should be uh, uh, featured in a Back to Basics. It started in BX. I have to, you know what? I And I've kept a lot of what I've written. I, I have adventures that I wrote in high school that I always wanted to publish. I mean, I, I would look back on them today and go, oh boy, that's terrible. But <laughs> but it would be fun to go back and pull those. And I have them all. Like I've not thrown anything away. I've really been sort of crazy about keeping all that old stuff. I have to go dig back and find all his character sheets, try to find the oldest one possible. Um, 
you know, but we ran, we rolled, we rolled stats down the line. We didn't, we didn't, there was no 4d6. It was 3d6 down the line. And I think he had a legit, I want to say he had a legit 17 dexterity. And I think with Ion stones and leveling and, you know, like magical items, I think I got his decks up to like 19 or 20 or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think I rolled, I legitimately rolled, I think he had single digits except for his decks. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean that's that was the first one, really the really the first one, not the magic. What user. was the character's was, name? His name was oh god, this is terrible. Black Dragonite. Why yeah, that, it was called Black Dragonite? I have no idea. That's you're getting Dragonite way before Pokemon at that point. Yeah, that, and the only reason I know that's because my kids too. Yeah, my kids into that right now. That's the only reason I know that's a uh, that's a Pokemon. But yeah. Um, so I okay. So you keep everything you've written. You look back at some of the older stuff. You're like, ah, cringe. But you know, it's it's a cool you know memorial of, of where mm-hmm. things came from. So taking your other question, you wish people asked, looking forward instead of looking back. What's the what's the future hold? And if you and I sit back down here in five years, what are we talking about as far as something cool that you've written or that you hope that you'll have written by that point? Sure. Um, I'm trying, I'm, I'm really moving in a direction where, um, I still want to always print games and I'm still going to write adventures because I feel like that's, you know, something that's going to be in me until I'm, <laughs> until I'm in the ground. Uh, um, but I'm really been working on a couple of projects on the side that are all digital. I'm working on a collector database that's going to turn, it's turning more into a collector's, uh, one-stop shop website um so that you can store your collection you can trade with people who have collections trade items back and forth between your collections buy sell forums but i want it to be so i'm in i'm in the data space for my job so i really want there i want it to be metadata rich so what i'm planning on doing this is a huge undertaking but what i'm planning on doing is basically delving into every at least for the start every tsr adventure and pulling out every monster, every treasure, every magic item, every spell, and and then storing it in a database so that when you want to research, I want to know all of the adventures that have a uh, staff of power. It'll tell you what published adventure, what page it's on, etc. It's a that big awesome. it's a big undertaking, but I feel like that's a huge missing part of our community is being able to delve deep into the data of all the stuff that's been written. So that's, so the intention is to launch it without that piece yet, because that's a big, big undertaking. Stand up the collector database so you can store your collection online. You can share it with people or not. It's private or public. You, you choose, uh, and then trade, buy, sell, etc. Forums, articles by a bunch of people that are willing to write for me to publish about collecting and, and, you know, like we talked about this con experience, publisher con experience, et cetera. Um, and then that I want that to sort of bake in for a few years. And hopefully that grows to a point where that's, you know, successful. But I'm also working on another side project. Again, I'm always working on multiple things um, where I'm basically building a, a text-based uh, adventure world where you basically will you know you play play a character and you get to delve into dungeons and and forests and stuff and it's basically like the old you know adventure for the vic 20 kind of style oh, like like muds like a, like a mud type exactly idea. exactly but but the difference is that there's no end it just continues to grow 
oh, that's continue to add content, you know, month after month after month. So there's tons of stuff. It will probably use my Desolantia system, which is a new game that's coming out this year from from my company. Um, that is uh, been I've been right I've been play testing and writing it for six seven years now. It's been a long time. It's a D two system. It's a binary system basically. So successes and failures. I have a special dice for it, a six sided that has three zeros and three ones. So. If you have a skill and you can th throw five dice, you could get zero all the way up to five. Um, it's really simple. The rule rule system is is very minimalistic. It's it's very easy to play. Um, but that'll probably be the basis of this um, this sort of text based game that I've been writing. I'm probably about seventy five percent done with the collector site, and I'm about forty percent done with the text based game. I'm I'm a fan of old games so for me you know i played zork i played you know adventure on the vic 20 i did all that stuff and i want that i want to come back i mean yeah i like digital games listen i i love dying light too i play that like every week i love a good first person game i love um did i love graphics but when it's the games that matter most to me it's text-based read puzzle things out in your mind visualize yeah. it yourself yeah so I'm going to be doing that. I've already got quite a bit of work into it, and that should be a end of twenty, end of twenty twenty three, early twenty twenty four launch. I'm hoping, and that will be so. To bring it all back to the question, I see myself always publishing, you know, paper books. However, I think that becomes secondary to moving into those two other arms that I've been I've been working on. I mean, I've already got stuff out on Amazon. Amazon Web Services is all going to be out there. Um, I've been doing some cloud work, so trying to get that stood up. It's interesting. That's where I see it's interesting how you describe the the collector's side. I said, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago uh, on one of the episodes here on the podcast, I was talking about a problem that I see in the OSR, um, in that anytime somebody has a tiny rule change, specifically to BX, like this is this is hugely prevalent in, in BX. I, I've made a tiny house rule, but instead of just publishing out my tiny house rule. I make a whole new version of BX <laughs> and, <laughs> and incorporate that, that house roll into it. And I was saying that I would love if there was somebody, uh, if there was a way that we could catalog, catalog all the common types of house rules. So I'm playing BX for a while and I decide, you know what? I don't like how the encumbrance works on this. Can mm -hmm. I go to a website and say, I'm running BX, show me different house rules for encumbrance and then get a list of here's, you know, 10 different ways that people have solved encumbrance issues and I could review them all instead of having to go somebody go, Oh, well go buy this whole other game. I don't want a whole other yeah. game. I just want to solve my encumbrance issue. Um, so I don't know how well that would fit in, but if, if, if you're kind of in that realm of where you're already kind of breaking down adventures and stuff, throw that out as, as a, you know, something else to throw up on the command board or something. That <laughs> well, I think that's great. And I think one of the things that I want to do for sure with this collector site is I have a, a kind of a vision of how I want it to go but I want all the rest of it, the stuff on the outside of it, I want that to be community driven. Like if the community says, we want to know all the different ways people have figured out initiative. Is it, is it D10? Is it D6? Is it D20? Is it high? Is it low? Is it based on decks? Is it based on this? Like all the different versions. Well, I'm a fan of having, uh, uh, you know, storing in the database, those different things and being able to find them quickly, right? You know, if you know anything about databases, it's not about, it's not about storage, it's about retrieval, 
right? It's yeah. about how do I get the information out? It's and, structuring it. Yeah, exactly. So if you store it a certain way so it can be easily searched and found, then it becomes an and then it becomes it goes from data to information. And I think that um, being able to do that dive into the database to find things, whether it's monster data statistics, where where are certain magic items and what published adventures, or things like that, where I want to uh, show me all the ways people figured out encumbrance. See, that's great because the community can put their 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 input in. It could be cataloged, organized, stored. And then people can search those things. And I think that's that's what's going to make the site really great is the community be able to say, I vote that after TSR has all been cataloged, I want all the Judges Guild stuff or I want all the, you know, or I want all the um, companion stuff or whatever. And then we let the community decide and then go do that work. So I think that'll be great when it's done. It just <laughs> It's just a lot of work at the moment. So do you have like a giant like command board type idea of all your different projects and where you're at in different ones? How do you organize all that? Uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a spreadsheet project planner kind of guy, so I keep everything running. I'm like I'm already know I always know like okay, so this project that I'm working on, what am what am I working on now? Who am I waiting for? What are my next steps? Um, do I owe people money? I mean, all that stuff's tracked in a giant spreadsheet where I'm really paying attention to those things. Otherwise, I would lose my mind, right? And I'm also a whiteboard guy, so I got whiteboards in my well, I just erased my whiteboard on my door. Um, <laughs> but I usually am like sketching out for the week. Okay, what am I working on this week? What I got what do I what am I behind on? Like what and, it, and the funny thing is is ShireCon is the only constant on that project list where it's year round. I'm always like, what do I gotta do next? Okay, so I did a t-shirt, I got some pins made, I gotta start looking at okay, I gotta make the banner, I gotta start setting up the tabletop event site, I start doing all my list stuff. So yeah, it's just if you want to be successful. And of course, you define what that really means, success. <laughs> right. It's not financial in this industry, unfortunately. Um, you basically got to plan and be on top of it. That's it. So where do people go to find all the stuff that you've written past and into the future and find out information on ShireCon? Where, where is the, do you have a central hub that everybody should go? I think I know the answer, but I'll throw it out so that everybody else can hear it. Right. So, I mean, uh, my throwygames.com website has stuff about a ShireCon has stuff has my full product list um that will take you to either kickstarters or drive through where my products exist um so you can I mean, obviously you can follow me on facebook you can follow me on kickstarter but throwgames.com actually has um a lot of information i don't update it as regularly as i should only because i'm usually doing other stuff but i'm i've i've gone into 2023 saying i'm going to be a little bit more diligent about my website to make that a central hub, obviously, and then be able to say, you know, I, so I have news that I put up there. Like I just put up news last week of what I'm planning to do this year and this quarter um, to give people kind of a heads up of what's coming. And I, I plan on keeping that up to date. So people are really sure that they know what, what, you know, what I've got out there. But if you look at my full product list on the website, you'll see that there's, you know, I think I've got over eight, almost 90 things published on drive through right now. So um, I've done a lot of work. A lot of it's under the radar, <laughs> but uh, there's there's something for everybody out there. I've done a little bit of everything. I've done sci-fi. I've done I've done a lot of everything. So, well, that's good. I hope everybody everybody can go in and check that out, and especially get. Uh, I'm I'm hoping I will have this out uh, at least a, a couple of days before the Kickstarter closes. But go and and take a look at Trouble at Mill Manor and see if if you know a choose your own adventure game in 2023. There isn't a lot of them. If this is a, your sort of a bag, jump on it. 
and uh, I'm looking forward to more issues of Back to Basics personally. So uh, lots of good things hopefully coming from you in the near future. And I really appreciate you coming on and chatting to me about, about all this. Um, yeah, so thank you for taking the time. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's a great time. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Red Caps podcast. I hope you enjoyed, you learned something, and that you are eager to come back for more. www.theredcaps.net has all the links to all the ways to contact me, and I would love to hear from you. Thank you ever so much for listening. And remember, never let your caps dry out. Stay safe, have fun. We'll talk again soon.